For our series of the ADC's competition talks with leading experts, we have today Alexander Destriel, Professor of European Law at the University of Namur, where he directs the Research Center for Information Law and Society, and he's also a member of NADI, the Namur Digital Institute. Alexander is a joint academic director at CERT, the Center on Regulation in Europe, and a member of the decisional body at the Belgium Competition Authority. Alexander, welcome to the ADC. I'm delighted to do this Comcast with you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure uh, to be here. Well, I'm going to propose you to make this Comcast digital. And by this, I mean, uh, let's address the questions that are currently in the discussion and that have been here for quite a, a while. And I have a feeling that they will be under discussion for a long time still. So we can't get enough of this topic because I think it has so much to offer. And there has been a wide debate as to the opportunities and the risks that the digital era brings about for competition policy. And you have contributed to this debate with several publications. Just recently, you published an issues paper on big tech acquisitions, competition and innovation. The challenges that mergers in the digital era pose for competition agencies are varied. They go from ensuring that the right deals are caught in the net of merger control to developing the competitive assessment of these deals in a context surrounded of uncertainty and also ensuring adequate remedy design. So I'm going to ask you to share with us some highlights on these three main challenges. Let's start for the first one, which is notification and ensuring we get these important deals under the radar. Okay, so um, this is uh, the first problem is how you screen those uh, big tech acquisition. And we know that with the current uh, treasure that we have, which is mainly based on uh, monetary turnover, that is not enough because very often those big term firm acquire some very small firm, which um, focus mainly on consumer. And so um, therefore they don't have an important, if any, monetary turnover. So it needs to be complemented with other um, threshold, but the question is which one? And here two proposals are on the table, which I think are interesting. One is um, to base um, the threshold on the value of the transaction. So um, if, for instance, uh, you uh, pay a lot uh, to acquire a very small company uh, which has a very small turnover, I mean, this is an indication that the market is uh, giving you. And so maybe you may use it to say, okay, at least this merger uh, should be analyzed. Another uh, proposal uh, that has been made is to say, okay, it's depend of who is acquiring, what are, what is the type of the acquirer. So, for instance, if it is a, a platform which is very big and which pose systemic uh, risk to competition, a bit like the big bank, which are uh, 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 putting some systemic risk to financial stability, those systemic platforms should be under a stricter oversight of uh, the authority, the antitrust authority. And one way to put them under a stricter oversight is to say every acquisition you do should be notified to the authority and then the authority uh, should have analyzed that. So those are two proposals. The value of the transaction proposal is already implemented in Germany and in Austria. And I think it would be good to, to see whether it works or not. The other proposal has not yet been implemented, but has been proposed in the Furman report, uh, Furman review in the UK, and uh, by a recent uh, French uh, paper of the uh, French Competition Authority, and seems to me very appealing. 
Indeed. I believe that in the Austrian and German experience, they have reported that mainly the notifications under these criteria have been on pharma, however. But let's see what the it's still early to tell, certainly. Now let me go to the second challenge. So once you get these deals to be notified to the competition authority, we don't want to say, be careful with what you wish for, because we need to make an assessment and we need to make a good assessment. So what challenges do you identify there and what solutions would you advise? So regarding the assessment, which is indeed the key issue, I, I see at least two questions. What are the theory of harm uh, the antitrust authority should use and, and, the, and with which a standard and a burden of proof. Regarding the first question on the theory of harm, I think really the issue is to look what will be the incentive of the big firm acquiring the startup um, to keep the innovation but to kill competition. So this is why when we talk about those uh, big tech acquisition, I think we should not talk about killer acquisition as in the pharma sector. Because what happens in the pharma sector very often is that they kill not only the competitor, but also the innovation. And that is obviously very bad. Here, in digital, the situation is a little bit more complicated because, in general, what happens is that the big tech uh, firm take the innovation and, in fact, develop it, possibly uh, faster and better than uh, what the startup would have done. But by doing that, it is killing a potential competitor. And so we have a kind of a trade-off to arbitrate between, okay, we see that we may have more innovation, at least on the short term, but less competition, which in the long term may lead to less innovation. And so I think we have a kind of a trade-off between long term and short term, which is never easy to decide. In any case, what we think to do is not to call them killer merger, as in pharma. And here again, I would like to refer to this uh, French uh, paper. It's not because I'm French, because I'm Belgium. Uh, but um, they talk about enveloping merger. And I think it's a much better term than killing merger in, uh, in digital. So that's for the first issue, the theory of harm. Then the second issue, uh, which is as important, uh, in particular because I am a lawyer, I say that uh, there is this issue of the standard and uh, the burden of proof. And here we know that, according to the current EU case law, um, it's a balance of probability that you should uh, use. So you should show that um, one scenario is more probable than the others, and you should decide on that basis. The problem, I think, in digital is that very often it's impossible to know what is the most probable scenario. So just to base yourself on probability is not very helpful. What also you have to look at is not only the probability, but the cost of each scenario. And uh, for instance, if we take the Facebook-WhatsApp uh, merger, um, it, it was probably very difficult or even impossible to tell whether uh, WhatsApp would have become a competitor um, to Facebook. But in any case, if that would have happened, that would have a huge benefit uh, for uh, competition and therefore for the society, because you would have another social network which would have compete with Facebook. So you could say that, you know, in terms of balance of probability, we don't know, and so that is not very useful. But in terms of balance of harm, uh, the fact that this potentiality that WhatsApp could have become a competitor to Facebook and that would have uh, had a lot of benefit for the society should have been taken into account into the analysis, which I think was not taken into account into the analysis because the Commission was not subject to that kind of standard of proof. 
Indeed, and if I may add also, I think it, it is very important to assess the right counterfactual. I remember that Chanti Ho once said in a, a digital conference uh, in Brussels that by preventing the incumbent from acquiring uh, a startup, you should also take into account that's not the only possible sell that the startup can make. There's other uh, firms that could alternatively buy that startup and develop the innovation as well. So now let's reach to the point where, okay, we've had a deal notified to the agency. We did a balance of uh, harms and we understand, we found after a thorough assessment that there is a very dark scenario in terms of impact on competition and now we need to move forward. We have two options. Either we block or if the merging parties put forward remedies to address these problems, then we may give a conditional clearance to the deal. So in terms of remedy design, what challenges do you see there and what kind of uh, suggestions for agencies would you give? So clearly, I think the remedy design is probably the most difficult issue now in antitrust in general and in digital in particular, for at least two reasons. The first is that the asymmetry of information between the firm and the agency is extremely high um, in digital because those are new issues, those are very complex issues. So uh, fortunately, the authorities and the Portuguese authority with the uh, ecosystem report uh, try to uh, decrease this asymmetry of information, and I think all those efforts are super welcome. But it remains that we have that asymmetry of information. The second um, difficulty is that there is a very high uncertainty. So um, in a way, information is low for everyone. There is probably less information even for antitrust authority, but even the firm don't know very well how things will evolve. So given that context, and you were mentioning uh, Jean Tirol uh, previously, he had also uh, two very good ideas um, for the remedy design. One is to uh, have a kind of participatory antitrust, and in particular participation of all the stakeholders into the design of the remedy. So this is something which is not new. Huh? The market testing of a remedy is a form of uh, participation, but I think we should push that much more and possibly look at the experience of co-regulation, where uh, there we have a lot of experience in uh, participation to uh, apply and to learn from those co-regulation experience into the antitrust remedy design. The second thing that uh, Tirol is mentioning is uh, to do more experimentation. So this experimental uh, antitrust. So we should try some remedy, test if it works, do an exposed assessment, and then adapt. And in fact, learning by doing. This is all what, what, what we do. This is also what the digital firm do a lot. I mean, they try, test, adapt, and possibly uh, this is what uh, an antitrust authority should do more as well. Now, the difficulty here, of course, with this experiment and antitrust is that A, the firm will say, yes, but we want legal certainty. And B, I'm not sure that the judge uh, would be so happy uh, that uh, authority experiment. So it's true, we will face, I mean, authority will face some difficulty in doing that, but I think um, it's worth to try, and I'm not sure that there is uh, many other uh, better alternatives, in fact. Well, certainly there are costs of not trying, so standing still is not an option. Now, you have written as well on data. And digital ecosystems are data-driven mainly, and this has brought a strengthened, reinforced perspective regarding data as a source of market power and data access as maybe the only key that we have to ensuring or restoring some competition in this digital context. Um, 
what I would ask for you to address in this question is what you address also in the paper. You identify risks and opportunities regarding data sharing. So I would ask if you could share with us uh, what you think those risks and opportunities are and how you see the optimal regulatory framework regarding data sharing. So the risks of data sharing are um, the same basic risk as when you force someone to share an asset, you know. And it's really in terms of re re reducing the incentive first of the data owner um, to collect, store, and analyze data, because if they know that they have to share everything, they may say, I would not collect in the first place. And also the incentive of the data seekers, which could say, okay, if I can get it easily from someone else, why would I bother to do it myself? So those, you know, those costs of, in terms of incentive of uh, compulsory sharing have been very well identified uh, in the opinion of the Advocate General Jacobs uh, in the Broner case. And I think we should, that, that should be the starting point and that should not be changed. But we should apply that um, trade-off and that framework that, that has been very well identified by Jacobs with the characteristic of data. And here I would claim that the benefits of sharing data are probably higher than for other goods. Why? Because data is a general purpose technology. And so data can be used in very different environments. So, you know, sharing data can have multiple benefits because you can use for multiple purpose. That's in terms of benefit. And in terms of cost, um, I think the cost of sharing data is probably less than the cost of sharing another goods because data is non-rival. So if you say to a data owner, you have to share it to someone else with your competitor, they still can use it, contrary to intangible good where if you have to share it, you cannot use it. So the point is that if you apply the same um, balance and trade-off, which has been identified by the court in the essential facilities doctrine, but to the specific characteristic of data, namely that it's a general purpose technology and that it's a non-rival good, then you end up, I think, with a lower threshold for intervention to impose data sharing. And this is, I think, this is how I read at least the uh, report of the special advisor for the commission, so Kremer, de Montjoie and uh, Schweitzer. Now, um, next to that, you have, of course, a risk of privacy of data sharing, and that should be taken into account. And I think more globally, if you look at the different uh, EU rules or EU law, you can see that some rules push data sharing, like competition law in some circumstances that we have just discussed, like the data portability in the GDPR, like the new data retrieval uh, uh, right that has been now um, provided by the Digital Content Directive. So you have some EU law which promote data sharings and some others which uh, says you have to be careful in particular uh, uh, for personal data uh, in the GDPR. And so we have to combine those different law going in different direction. Now, the good news is that uh, most of those law are relatively unclear. <laughs> and so uh, they leave a margin of interpretation. And what we claim in our paper with my colleague uh, Inge Grave and Thomas Tombal is that we have to ensure that the interpretation of those rules are done in a consistent manner, which then require a very good cooperation between all those authorities in charge of those laws, the antitrust authority for the competition law, the consumer protection authority for the digital content directive, and the privacy authority for the GDPR. It's very important that we organize in a structured dialogue between those authorities at the national level and at the European level.
Indeed, also because the incumbents will try to turn GDPR into a foe rather than a friend to, to data sharing regulation. And I think there's an example to add to the list that you have just described, which is the second payment directive in which there's data sharing uh, uh, obligations from banks to, to new entrants in the market. Now, okay, so we have addressed a lot of the enforcement challenges uh, because digital has changed a lot of things. But let me now go to the very fundamentals of EU competition policy. Do you believe that all these developments and these discussions that we have been having have an impact on the core objectives of competition policy? Uh, yes, to some extent, yes. If we go back to the basic and what are the main characteristics of the digital economy, I at least can point to three. One is a very high concentration in the industry, which is perfectly rational because there are a lot of network effect and feedback loop, uh, um, uh, in particular in the data analysis. The second one is a very high innovation, uh, which is often, not always, but often disruptive, and so more difficult to predict. And the third is a very high uncertainty in the in the sector, partly caused by this um, disruptive innovation. So, you know, when you have those three characteristics, I think the objective of uh, competition policy should take that into account. And my, my guess is that um, the objective of competition policy, given those characteristics, and in particular, given the importance of innovation, is to ensure an innovation level playing field. So it should be as easy for a big company than for a very small innovator in a garage or elsewhere to invent and bring its innovation to the market. I think that really should be the goal of the antitrust agency uh, today. Now, the question is then with what kind of normative framework? And there, the good news I would say is that we do not have to reinvent the wheel, but we just have to read back to uh, some of all the authors uh, which have thought a lot about economic policy in general and competition policy in particular, and that is the ordo-liberal tradition, which really were about defending the competitive process as a value in itself. You know, you may say, okay, that is not new, and in fact, the court is always mentioning competitive process. That is true. But you may face sometimes a trade-off between efficiency, economic efficiency of today, which will be done at uh, the expense of um, diversity and uh, competitive process. So the question is, if you have a merger which will lead to more concentration and possibly more efficiency today, but less competitive process and less diversity today and possibly less innovation tomorrow, what do we do? And my analysis is that with some current mainstream IO thinking, you would say, yes, you let that merger to go ahead because it is creating efficiency today. Okay. While even with an auto-liberal framework where you put more importance to competitive process and diversity, you would say, no, maybe I stopped that merger because I want to still to have some a little competition on the market. Now, let's be clear. My point is not to say that we should protect competitor uh, and not competition. My point is that to say competition is a competitive process and it not only a short-term efficiency. Well, indeed. But I think there's some IO literature with dynamic models that I think can capture all those effects. And it's good to know that the expressions that the courts have been using actually make a lot of economic sense in the end. Thank you very much, Alexander. It was great to have this Comcast with you. Thank you very much. And I hope we will continue this conversation. Thank you.